And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Good morning, North Mountain. Morning. It's so good to be here. Uh, my name is Aaron Daly. I'm actually one of the pastors uh, in Redemption. I get to be one of the executive leaders there. I also pastor... Uh, with Wayne Winter over at uh, Redemption Alhambra. And so I got invited this morning by some of my favorite people, and I hope there's some of yours, the Watts. I cannot stand how cute they are. Can you give them just a big hand for being incredible? They are so amazing. I, I can't tell you how blessed you are to have them as leaders and pastors within this community. I I come to places like this, and, and this is not an easy thing to do. And it's not just the work it's the load that has to be carried. And I, I would encourage you to keep praying for your pastors. There is so much that they have to carry and do. So for me to be able to stand up here and preach and be in this house and see the growth of North Mountain, you guys are a valued and blessed part of uh, redemption. And we just love being a part of this family. So I just, uh, I'm so honored to be here with you this morning. I will say one of the things that I struggle with is whenever Josh invites me to preach, I feel like he gives me texts he knows that I'm going to struggle to do. Um, personally, this one is two chapters with a ton of stories, and I can't even say my name in 40 minutes, let alone preach this much. I mean, I struggle with long-windedness, and so the struggle for me today is going to be how do, what do I say and what do I not say? Uh, and so we'll trudge through this together and hopefully at the end you'll get something out of it. How about that? Does that sound good? Um, one of the things I've loved about this series, We Want a King, has been the reality of how intentional it's been in this season of life, particularly in all of the political polarization that's happening in our nation. Uh, uh, Redemption has chosen to do something that is blatantly, if you will, political. Um, and sometimes what we think when we come to the scriptures is we go, you just preach the gospel and stay out of politics. The sovereign God does not allow that in our lives. There's not one square inch that the sovereign God doesn't say, that's mine. Your political life is Jesus's. All of life belongs to Jesus. And so when we come into rooms like this, we must see that we are not the first nation that has struggled with these tensions. We are not the first nation that has navigated them, let me be honest, poorly. 
So what we've looked at is this nation, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, cried out, we want a king. And the reason they wanted a king is because they wanted to be like the rest of the nations. There is a desire in us to be like everyone else. And when we want to be like everyone else, what we do is we choose a leader. And the reason we choose a leader and the reason we cast our vote for a leader is because we want someone who will represent our strengths and fight our battles. This is why they chose Saul. Saul was the chosen king of Israel. He was the one who would represent their strengths and fight their battles. The problem was when we choose a king, instead of him representing our strengths, he exposes our weaknesses. And when we choose a king, instead of him fighting our battles, he ends up becoming an enemy to God. We would love for our leaders to represent our strengths, but church, our leaders have exposed our weaknesses. They have completely exposed us as a nation. And when we as the people of God want someone to fight our battles, we have to choose the battles they want to fight and they may not be God's battles. So Saul was their chosen king, but God does something in the midst of this to go, you wanna choose a king? Now I'm gonna choose a king. David is God's chosen the thing you have to see about God's chosen is David is not one that they would have chosen. God chooses differently than we choose. We choose based off strength and height and all kinds. Of, do they believe the things we believe? All the things that we think should should fall into the category of what we choose. God chose what nobody else would choose. And that theme follows throughout all the scripture. There are so many places that this. Let me remind you, church, you weren't the smartest. God chose you. Amen. You weren't the strongest. God chose you. Matter of fact, being God's chosen is not a pat on the back for being the first pick. It's actually a reminder. Nobody else would choose you. God chooses different. And the type of king God chose was David, who was a shepherd king, not a king king. He was a covenant king, meaning they couldn't tell the difference between him and the rest of the people. He wasn't a celebrity. He was a covenant king. And he was one who waited for God to exalt him rather than fight for the throne. He didn't fight for power. He waited for God to exalt him. He waited 30 or 25 years-ish before he stepped into the position that was promised to him as a teenager. We're so used to 
leading differently than that. David was different. And let me remind you, so I'm going to remind you, but then I want you to turn to your neighbor and do something we do in our tradition. I want you to remind your, dif- your neighbor you're different. So turn to your neighbor right now, look him in the face. I know you don't like looking at people in the face at church, but look him in the face and say, you're different. Say, you're different. I couldn't hear you. You all got real quiet. Turn to the other neighbor and say, you're different. You're different. You're different. You're different. You know why I feel like we need to remind ourselves of this? is because I think the church in the West struggles with being peculiar. We struggle with being a different type of people. We are so used to fitting in that when it comes to being different, that this reality scares us. The people of God were struggling with being different, and this is why they tribalized. And when I'm speaking of tribalization, I'm also speaking about the 12 tribes of Israel who entered into a reality of tribalization and they separated like any nation. We try to find our tribe who we're the same as. So not only are we chosen different, we're confronted different. Anything that God chooses, he confronts. We looked back at David, and the reason why I needed to go there this morning is because a lot of what we're going to look at today is because of God's confrontation to David. Now, remember, David was God's chosen, but he also failed big time. Sexual exploitation, murder, all kinds of things that you see David doing in the text is horrific And what we think is, if God chooses someone, they must be morally superior. We think if God's chosen people makes them morally superior, what we learn is we are not a morally superior people because we're chosen by God. What made David different was not his moral superiority, it was his repentance. Saul did not repent. David did horrific things and he repented. And not only was he confronted different, when God chooses different, he confronts different. What else does he do? He controls different than we control. I think as a, you know, reformed-esque people, we, we, you, we use this word sovereign freely and we think we came up with it some way or another. And we say, God is in control. He chooses. He confronts. He does all these things. And can I say amen to that? I just want to make sure you understand that you may be using the word, but you may have a different definition because God controls different than we control. I think what we say when we say God is sovereign is that he is controlling, not that he is in control. Here's what I mean by this. Many of us think God is controlling. That if, if, if God would let this happen, how could he be good and how could he be in control? God is in control and not only is he in control he takes all of the good and the bad and somehow weaves it together in a tapestry of his sovereignty that david did horrific things but 
just because he did horrific things and was forgiven because of his repentance doesn't mean that bad consequences were not going to ripple through the nation because of David's sin. Matter of fact, it says opposite of that. Because of David's sin, there was going to be one of his own family who was going to rise up and try to take the nation and the sword was going to be in David's family. How could God allow this type of division because of sin if he was in control? And what we do is we say if God is in control, he must be controlling rather than when we say God is in control, we get to rest. Because he makes all of it work together in a tapestry of his sovereignty that the dark strands of this tapestry actually highlight the beauty of his grace. So not only does he choose differently, not only does he confront differently, he controls differently than we would control. Which means what we're going to look at today needs to be put under the same category. He comes back different. So what we see is that David has seen now the ripple effects from his son Absalom who has basically said, I am going to take your nation. And he gets a whole army, the whole north, to come against David. And David loses this battle and it's now his kingdom is taken from him. And his son who has divided the kingdom has put David back in the, in the south and he's only leading with a smaller group. And, and Absalom has taken this whole nation and they go back into war. The only result is saying, don't kill my son, Absalom. And Absalom gets killed. I want us to get the context of this because I think sometimes we can think that David is going to war against his enemies. Brothers and sisters, he is fighting his son. Here's what political realities do. It puts us at war with sons and daughters and fathers and mothers. Here's what sin does. It tribalizes the family of God and puts us at odds with one another. And even though David has just had the victory and is going to come back and take his throne, victory is complicated and confusing when it's civil war and family fighting. This is the context. David doesn't stand up the next day and scream for victory he goes into mourning because his son has died have you ever been in a place where you were right but you still feel like you lost nobody <laughs> have you ever been in a place where you're fighting with your family and even though you know your convictions are right, it's still your father. It's still your son. It's still your mom. 
And it's hard to celebrate a victory when your son has died. Yeah, but he stabbed you in the back and he took your kingdom and he divided the nation. And look at all the stuff he did. Hey, listen, you're not the only one who got angry. David gets confronted by his army and pulls him aside and says, listen, I think what you uh, are doing is, is horrific. And, and I'm going to need you this week to kind of study these texts because I can't read all of them. I have a short period of time and I talk too much, okay? So go back and study Samuel 19, 2 Samuel 19 and 20, because at the beginning, this man pulls him aside and says to him, listen, David, if you cry over Absalom's death, you're going to divide the nation. They're going to think that you wanted all of them to die rather than him to die. Now is a time for us to celebrate victory, not for you to cry. David screams out a gospel prayer. Absalom, my son Absalom, I wish it was me who died rather than you. The father's heart for his children is for unity. That's the father's heart. You realize that when God created everything, he created everything to be one, to be united. And sin separates and divides the family of God. And what God has come to do in his kingdom is take everything that has been separated because of sin and bring it back to being one. I don't think we care about unity enough. I'll tell you what we do care about, being right. I don't think we care about unity enough. I'll tell you what we do care about, convictions. And when I say I don't think we care about unity enough, I'm saying this. We don't have the heart of the Father. We think what God wants is for us to have victory, to defeat our enemies, to crush. But the problem is, in crushing our enemies, could we be crushing our family? I'll tell you this, I have not seen a lot of unity in the church but I have seen a lot of statements about our convictions. And celebrating our victories publicly. Yes, Absalom caused all kinds of division and conflict within the nation. But I think what we see within David is the cry of a father. And then what we see in Verses 8 through 12, 14 and 15, and 
and uh, 41 through 53 of chapter 9 is that Israel and Judah show that the unity of God's people requires faithfulness to a king. Here's, Here's what I want you to see. At the beginning of this, Judah and Israel have been divided because of this. And what happens is they start fighting over who has the most seats in the tribe. Sound familiar? I I guess this is just them back in the day. That's not us. No, we never fight for power. And they go, we got 10 seats. The north, we got 10 seats. And and we know this. And we, we want him to come back and sit on his rightful throne. Now they're fighting for who's going to get David before they were fighting for Absalom. Now they're going, listen, he's won. And, and we got to get this thing back together. We need the power seat. And they're all fighting. And then you have Judah going, we've been loyal to him this whole time. The north and the south have been fighting And now they're fighting once again. But what David is wanting is unity. That's what he's wanting. And today, what Jesus wants as king is unity. What Jesus died for is unity. Church, until we begin to see what the king wants and what he paid for and what he died for, that you will not begin to see that the only way to unity is when both Israel and Judah, the north and the south, decided that they needed to lay down their convictions and have loyalty to the same king. The only way the church will find unity is when they submit their convictions and pledge allegiance first to the loyalty of King Jesus. And that his heart and his desires and his way and what he prayed for and what he paid for was for the unity of his family. The reason we fight for power and not for unity is because we don't think unity is powerful. We don't think it's powerful, so we fight for power. We think unity shows weakness. That's why the kingdom of God is different. And let me remind you, because that's why I came here this morning, that means you're different. That means your priority is loyalty to the king and his desires, the unity of his people. So David shows how unity should happen in four stories or uh, five stories that we're going to hit. And I I cannot read them, but I'll I'll reference them, okay? So that means you're going to actually have to read your Bible this week. (laughs) First thing is, If I say their names wrong, I'll say them fast and confidently, and you won't be able to tell that I said them wrong, okay? Joab and Amasa show that the true king turns his enemies into servants. 
Amasa was against David and Joab. And, and what happens is, is he goes after the battle and he is the commander of the rebel army. He was the one who was trying to destroy David. Now David is victorious and he comes back and he basically begs for forgiveness, if you will. And David does more than just forgive him. He makes Amasa the commander of his army rather than Joab, who was his right-hand man. What David does is take his quote-unquote enemy and makes him his servant. Hmm. But when you make enemies your friends, it can make your friends your enemies. Because when someone has been loyal to you, you, you remember the story of the prodigal son? When the son who stayed home, when the son came back home, he didn't like it. And same when you, when you've been tribalized. You don't want to see forgiveness for your enemies. You want to see destruction. And when they receive grace, grace is offensive. And not just a grace of like, yeah, you're cool. We won't throw you in jail. It was a grace like, hey, you're my commander now of my army. David is showing how unity between a divided nation can happen. It's when enemies become friends by serving the same king. Unity is impossible if we keep picturing everybody as our enemies. It's a complicated story. Go study it. Next point, verses 16 and 17, Abishai and Shammai, I think, Shammai, 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 you say Shammai, I say Shammai. <laughs> Show that the true king is patient until the day of judgment. That's verses 16 and 17. This one cursed David, Shammai uh, 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 cursed David, and, and now because David has won, He's changed his mind. And so he immediately goes, maybe I cursed the wrong guy. So he runs to David and says, listen, please forgive me. And then Abishai goes, don't forgive him because he's faking repentance. Which, can I be honest? Later in Solomon's reign, that was proven to be true. But what David does is says, no one's going to die today. There's been enough death. You shall not die, and I promise to protect you. And it doesn't make everyone happy because they think he's faking repentance, which kind of proves to be true. But this is what our king does. He has patience to prove out if repentance is real. We don't. We immediately assume their repentance is fake. 
But David shows patience and forgiveness because here's what I want you to know. If you want to see unity in a divided nation, you're going to need patience. Unity doesn't happen because you put on a service and go, hey, now we're united. Unity happens as we live patiently with one another. David shows forgiveness and patience. The next story in verse 17 and 18 is Ziba and Meshibetheth. You remember Meshibetheth? He was Jonathan's son who had disability. And David said, I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to be merciful to him. Gives him a bunch of land. But when David runs out is run out of the north. He's now left and cannot take care of Meshibetheth. And so Meshibetheth is left vulnerable and unprotected. Now that David has won, he comes back and Meshibetheth comes and says, look at Ziba came in and took advantage of me and he took all of my land and he did all of these things. And David, instead of going, let's kill him, says, you know what? Split it. Split the land. And we're going to talk about this at the end, but Meshibetheth says something profound. Actually, he can have all of it because I have my king back. I don't need all the possessions. I don't need things to be made fair. I've got you back. The next story is between two an old man who had remained faithful, even though he was stuck in hostility, he remained faithful to David and continued to fund David's battle. And he, David comes back and this man has acted faithfully towards David. And David goes, I'm going to reward you for my faithful servant. And this man says, listen, I'm old. Take care of my son. And what they show is that the true king rewards faithful service for generations. Chapter 20 gives us another insight that we can't spend a lot of time on, but David allows another war because there's someone in the camp who's trying to cause division again. And so he allows for them to go and root out division because the line in the text says this, if we allow this to keep going, he's going to do worse than what Absalom did. So David says, yes, go fight for unity. So he allows another war so that unity can be fought. And they get to the walls of this land, of this tribe. They get to the walls of this land. And they're about to take over this land and destroy everybody in the land so that unity can be brought again. And a wise woman cries out from the walls. Isn't it amazing that we're hearing echoes of the next reign of Solomon who says, divide the baby in half. And then they say, no, just let the baby remain whole. And another echo now of a wise woman. Isn't it amazing that wisdom in scripture is referred to as a woman crying out? It's amazing that this woman has the wisdom to say, don't let the whole city die. We'll send you the head of the one who's causing division. Let's go after the division, this wise woman yells. Church, as I sat before this text, 
and prayed and studied. I'm like, what do I focus on? There's so much here. I might have cursed Josh Watts' name a few times. I'm going, what should I say? I might have called Josh, Josh, you know, what are you going to do? No, I'm not doing this. I'm taking a week off, you know. So I sat before this text and prayed. There's so many stories. One right after another. And the word that the Spirit of God kept putting on my heart is that the kingdom and God's kingdom, when Jesus is king, unity is priority. And if unity is priority, and I know there was just a war, and I know Absalom was trying to divide everything, and I know there's been division, and I know there's all kinds of things that are being said. If there is anything that we can see in this text is what the heart of God is, is for the unity of Israel, not for its division. The heart of King David is for the unity of Israel and not for its division. And the only way you're going to see real unity is not by using weapons of this world. Church, I believe that your biggest struggle is being different. When everyone around you has conspiracy theories and ways that we should look at one another, dehumanizing the others, looking at the world around us and pushing ourselves different, and we're focusing on the ways that we should be separate and, and, and unique and, and all kinds of things, the thing that makes us different is not our convictions. It's not our moral superiority. It's grace. It's grace that makes us different. And when I say grace, I think as good reformed people, we love to talk about the imputation of grace. We love it, that it has been imputed upon us because of the work of Christ. We have had imputed uh, righteousness and imputed grace. By grace, all of these things have been imputed onto us. And I say, amen, but not enough. Because the gospel doesn't stop at imputation. It is about impartation. Grace has not just been imputed onto you, it's been imparted into you. Can I just help us for today? We are not just a group of dressed up sinners. We are a new humanity. We're not just covered in righteousness, we're filled with righteousness. We have sold the gospel Short to like God's love for us is like putting a bag over our head and just going, just don't look at them. Like the gospel's only work is covering us from all of our sins and it does not have enough power to change us and to make us different. The beauty of the gospel is not just you in Christ. 
Christ is in you. I wish you knew what you had in you. I wish you knew the power of the gospel that resides within you because if you did, it wouldn't just be about grace for you, it would be about grace through you. Because what makes us different is that the same forgiveness that has been given to you, you have authority to give to others. That's good. Do you think the church is known in our world for forgiveness? That's what we're known for. Have you ever thought it strange that the people who have grace theology are not gracious? Have you ever thought it strange? Because here's the reality of the gospel, that this gospel of grace has so transformed your heart that it makes you different. And David was different. He was a different type of king. Oh yeah, he messed up. Big time. But what made him different is he repented. Can I just put something in front of you that I think could help us today? I think David wept at the death of Absalom and cried out that this could be my death rather than his? Because I think he remembered. What Absalom did was horrible and horrific. And no excuse for Absalom. But David didn't have clean hands. Because this wouldn't have happened if it wasn't because of the consequences of his sin. I think so many of us walk around with self-righteousness like the division and brokenness in our world is everybody else's fault and we are clean hands. David could forgive because he remembered how much he had been forgiven. David could show patience because he remembered how patient God had been with him. David could make enemies his friends. Why? Because he remembered how God had taken him and made him a friend when he was acting as an enemy. Church, We are different, which means we celebrate our victories different than the rest of the world. We don't go and rub it in people's faces when something goes our way. We don't go and do a I told you so tour. We don't go to those who differ from us 
with a smirk on our face. We have tears in our eyes. And we march back to the position of power with forgiveness, patience, kindness, self-control. Boy, these start sounding like the fruits of the Spirit, don't they? (laughs) Because not only are we different because we're chosen, confronted, we come back different. This reminds us that David is a foretaste of a better king. He, in his forgiveness and mercy and in his grace and in the way he comes back, is pointing towards the one who will come, who when he comes and when he came, he came with forgiveness and grace and mercy and weakness. Matter of fact, he wasn't the only king who people didn't think he was acting very kingly. Jesus' biggest struggle when he came into the world was they're like, this can't be the Messiah because that's not how the Messiah acts. Our Messiah is going to crush our enemies and overthrow the government. This Messiah, born in a manger, forgiving people, he's different. I know the rest of the world wants a conquering king, but our king has conquered He just conquered differently. He conquers with grace. He conquers with patience. It's not a fun end of the movie when the person who's been like treating people badly gets off with forgiveness. It is when you're the one treating people badly. I think we've forgotten how much we've been forgiven. So we're offended when we have to forgive others. The reason there's not unity in the church, the reason there's not unity in your family, the reason there is not unity in your relationships is not because you all don't share the same convictions it's because there's no grace in your family. There's no forgiveness in your family. There's no repentance. There is no patience. There is no kindness. There is no love. The reality of the division that is in the church is not because we don't all have the same theological persuasions. It's because we're not filled with the Holy Spirit treating each other with the fruits of the Spirit. I hate to burst your bubble this morning, but we're not all going to see things the same way. But we do have the same spirit. Church, when we ask this morning for Christ to come, I want us to 
end where we started. This prayer of Meshibotheth, if I don't know if it can go on the screen, but I, I'd love to just read it. Remember, he was the one who was mistreated. And he comes to David and says, hey, my grandfather's descended to deserve nothing but death from my Lord and King. But you gave your servants a place among those who eat at your table. So whatever is right, I have to make any more appeal. Uh, so what, what, so what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? So the king said to him, why say more? I, I order you and Ziba to divide the land. And here's what Meshibotheth says back. Let him take everything. Now that my Lord, the king has returned, I am home safely. You want to know what this shows? This shows that Meshibotheth wasn't willing to fight for his possessions and his land. He just wanted his king back. Because when his king was back, provision was back, safety was back. I think Meshibotheth's priority should be ours. What do we really want back? Do we want our land back? Or do we want our king? Do we want our possessions back and our power back? Or do we want our king? I think what has been exposed is we want our possessions, our land, and our rights. That's why when David says, just divide it. Just just divide it. We're fighting for things the king doesn't even care about. He owns it all. What makes us different is grace, which means, hear me on this, sometimes showing grace will make you look like you got taken advantage of. It'll make you look gullible. Oh my goodness, the worst thing you can be in this world is gullible. That's the worst sin imaginable. It'll make you think the best of somebody. Even when you know they don't deserve to be thought the best of. It'll help you to forgive people when you realize how much you've been forgiven. You realize every week we come to the Lord's table celebrating the grace that has been imparted to us, imputed upon us. We celebrate a grace and a forgiveness that none of us in this room could say, I earned. We celebrate a king who divided himself so we could be together. We celebrate a king who spilt his own blood so that we could drink of the same cup. We celebrate Jesus who prayed for and paid for togetherness. Hey, there's a difference between praying for something and paying for something. Can we say amen? A lot of us pray for stuff we never pay for. 
Jesus didn't just ask for it, he paid for it. And he didn't just pay for it, the check was cashed when he came out the grave. There was enough in the bank to cover it. His life, death, burial, and resurrection is the power in which walls of hostility, according to Ephesians, get broken down and that people who have been separated because of sin now become one. Church, when we come to the Lord's table, we prioritize what the king prioritizes. Before you come to the Lord's table, pause and think about people that you've made enemies. The other side of the political aisle, there could be no Christians over there. Right? No way. Ours is the Christian side. We could never see them as brothers and sisters. The other denominations? No. What ways have we divided ourselves in a fight for power that when we come to the Lord's table, we need to, before we come and drink of his body and blood and drink deeply of his love and forgiveness, maybe he could be calling you to forgive some people. To repent of the ways that You've caused division. To ask for his spirit to give you patience and kindness and wisdom. Because against those things, there is no law. Just grace. So Father, we ask that as we cry out with Meshibbeth, give him everything else. I just want you. Could you give us your heart for your family, for your nation, for your people? Could you give us a heart for your world? And could you cause us to see the power that's in unity?